Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. I'm Ira Jersey, the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. With me today, we go off campus once again with the head of fixed income for Monday U.S., John Dunsing. John, thanks very much for coming on on the Fick Focus Podcast. Ira, you bet. Uh, glad to join you today. Um, you know, certainly interesting times right now. So um, <laughs> appreciate the opportunity to catch up with you. Well, for for sure. Let's let's talk first about um, what your position is as the head of fixed income for an asset manager, and um, you, you know what types of money you run, and uh, and, and the different mandates that you uh, um, that you try to try to fulfill for your customers. Sure, sure, happy to. Yeah, well, you know, as a uh, as a global organization, uh, you know, we're you know, we're we're overseeing uh, you know assets for clients um, that uh, you know, run the gamut from uh, mutual funds. Uh, so institutional and retail investors that that, that are able to access uh, the U.S. fixed income markets through mutual funds, as well as uh, you know, non-U.S. Uh, similar type of structures of you know across Europe use its types of vehicles, and then at the same time, um, also working uh, with uh, with institutional asset owners domestically as well as globally on um, on individual separate account mandates. Um, so so really working with uh, those. Uh, Larger asset owners on uh, customized fixed income solutions um, that uh, that tend to be focused um, on the U.S. markets, um, as you noted, uh, and they can range from uh, broad U.S. fixed income. So these could be uh, you know, mandates that are benchmarked relative to, let's say, the Bloomberg Barclays aggregate type of index, um, or they could be uh, single asset type of strategies uh, that that may be focused on U.S. investment grade corporates, uh, U.S. or global high yield, as well as you know, things like securitized credit. Um, so it's a a broad uh, a broad range of of exposures uh, that um, that our investment professionals uh, are able to provide for uh, asset owners both here domestically in the U.S. as well as on a uh, on a global basis. Um, and you know, from my standpoint, um, you know, while while I'm someone that that manages portfolios um, on behalf of clients. I'm also responsible for uh, managing and working with um, all of our investment professionals here in the U.S. Um, on the fixed income side, which uh, considers portfolio managers as, as well as our our research team here in the U.S. Um, so it's um, kind of working with uh, with all of those professionals to make sure that uh, you know we're we're delivering. Kind of what we're supposed to deliver as it relates to asset management expertise and financial solutions for those investors. That's great. So, so John, let me let's just start then with the discussion about the future of asset prices within the fixed income world. Um, you know how how do you start your approach? What's the first things that that you all look at as a research team, as a portfolio management team, um, in terms of uh, fixed income investing? And then, firstly, obviously, what you know the Fed is going to come up somewhere here. So let's talk about you know how your view of the Federal Reserve might enter great with the rest of your outlook for fixing different fixed income asset classes sure you know I, the, the way we the way we think about investment opportunities and and construct portfolios uh, is is certainly one that that's more bottom-up driven um, so it's uh, you know reliant upon on the fundamental research and investment insights um, that are um, 
that are generated by um, our research analysts as, as well as our portfolio management team. Um, but it's it's really more geared towards kind of active management and uh, in, in security selection um, as well as uh, sector allocation. Um, so it's that that bottom up component that that really drives a lot of the the long-term performance um, that, that we're able to generate for our client portfolios. However, um, we certainly need to be informed uh, by you know what's going on uh, as it relates to you know the macro landscape out there, and and not just domestic here in the U.S., um, but also on a global basis. As um, you know, we all appreciate the the fact that. Um, you know, the economies, well, whether maybe they feel more fragmented today on a global basis than they have been in the past, there's still an interconnectedness there that um, that is important to consider as, as we evaluate those opportunities. Um, so, so of course, we're going to start with um, kind of the, you know, the outlook that uh, that our team has, and, and, and it, it could be the team here, the macro team that's based in the U.S., but it's also, you know, the, the colleagues that we have across the organization on a global basis that are also uh, providing their perspectives um, from a macro and a strategy standpoint, uh, you know, more on more on that that global macroeconomic environment. Um, so, you know, starting with the the insights um, that that we receive from uh, those those macro perspectives, and then that more importantly then filters down into uh, the uh, the analysis that's taking place by the individual research analysts uh, within their areas and sectors of extra expertise, as well as the asset classes of their expertise. Um, and then those are translated through to recommendations um, that are you know, discussed and um, and debated uh, with our uh, portfolio managers, and then ultimately uh, considered for implementation within the context of our portfolios, you know, to the extent that those are appropriate opportunities for uh, you know, for the portfolios themselves. So talk a little bit about the bottom up. Um, you know, obviously you might do some fundamental research, but but also how do you assess value when assessing different sectors? So you mentioned sector allocation is important. So when you're thinking about the Bloomberg Aggregate Index and treasuries versus mortgages versus agencies versus um, you know other structured product like deeper structured product or or even off index bets that you might um, consider making, um, you know how, how do you determine that relative value? from a bottom-up perspective sure so there are you know there are components of that that are um, key to the the fundamental investment analysis that we do as it relates to credit underwriting let's say if we're talking about you know corporate credit um, uh, part of part of the responsibility of our investment analysts as well as the portfolio managers is is not only underwriting the credit risk so under understanding what type of maybe default and liquidity risk um, we should be compensated for by taking an investment in, in certain credit related securities but also um, being able to uh, appropriately assign kind of value to you know what that cost of that credit risk should be or what that cost of liquidity risk can be and some of that um, can be uh, driven through a fundamental framework. Um, for some other asset classes, um, there are quantitative tools um, that you can use um, to you know, price maybe individual embedded options um, that exist in certain securities. I think you're know, talking about the, the agency mortgage market, as you'd referenced a, a moment ago. You know, that is, uh, that's an area where um, you know, quantitative modeling techniques um, can, can help us price um, certain prepayment options that are embedded in those securities and, and better identify you know what that that option adjusted spread may be to help with that base of um, kind of relative valuation of, across asset classes. So not only with that that single you know mortgage backed security sector, but then also how does the portfolio management team think about 
that asset class relative to, uh, you know, to, to, as you noted, government bonds, or how do they think about that relative to corporate credit? So it's really uh, utilizing kind of the insights and, and, and the research tools um, on a fundamental basis um, that then informs those valuation decisions, but then those can also be complemented with quantitative approaches as well um, that, are, that are using you know, specific market-related data uh, to help tease out uh, you know, those, those valuations um, that they can better be used to, to make the relative valuations across asset classes. So since we're talking about the macro environment and, uh, you know, this is the macro matters edition of our podcast, you know, talk about, maybe we can spend just a, a minute or two on the mortgage market, because obviously there's been a lot of extension. And so mortgage, uh, mortgage durations went from being extremely low in, in the period after uh, the pandemic to now being, uh, you know, extending uh, extremely, uh, extremely long. Um, you know, when you think about when you think about the duration extension that's occurred and then the slowdown that seems to be coming in the housing market, you know, how concerned then are you of that sector and, and also related sectors, right? So in corporates, obviously you have uh, home builders and, and uh, other um, finance related uh, names that, that might be affected by what's going on in the mortgage market properly. And, and, you know, how do you integrate those risks? You know, it's interesting within the agency MBS market, um, as you noted, the the extension that took place last year as the the prepayment option, which is really the the main embedded option in agency mortgages, um, as that option moved significantly out of the money, as a vast majority of the homeowners here in the U- U.S. had had locked in extremely low mortgage rates, you know, through the uh, Kind of lead up to the pandemic as well as through the post-pandemic period. Um, so um, interestingly enough, you know, while credit risk is is really nothing that that is a factor uh, for the agency MBS market, um, it's it's really always been a um, kind of a modeling uh, challenge around this prepayment risk. But but as you note, as those securities have extended, as that prepayment option moved significantly out of the money and the certainty uh, the likelihood of, of continued principal and interest uh, payments being made by existing you know, mortgage holders here in the United States went up um, you know the the um, the uncertainty around um, how you would maybe price or model uh, the future characteristics of, of those securities actually to a certain extent got a little bit easier uh, so it's uh, it's something that uh, you know, to us, it, the the fundamental and the the you know, the the embedded option or prepayment option component of that asset class uh, has um, has you know had maybe more certainty than what we've seen at at, at numerous periods in time. Uh, the challenge has really been uh, just a, a couple of the dynamics more on the on the technical side there within the asset class, and and that's really what we think has led to some very attractive trading opportunities within the asset class. And, and it's been more around the fact that we've had, you know, the, um, the Federal Reserve kind of running mortgages off the, uh, off the Fed's balance sheet through the quantitative tightening program. So, so you've gone from this environment of where the Federal Reserve was the main buyer of agency mortgages to now that the Federal Reserve no longer um, part of that marketplace. So the market needs to search for um, another uh, balance sheet, so to speak, to, to fill that void. And then also just the, the concern and the overhang around um, any additional selling um, specifically here you know this is something that's become uh, very topical over the last month or so of um, of financial 
you know, banks and financial services companies maybe being sellers of, of agency mortgages in, in the marketplace. So that's led to um, some of the recent spread volatility and movement that we've seen in that segment of the marketplace. Um, but but that's uh, you know that that is something that from our standpoint, um, we certainly feel that that volatility and spreads um, just correspondent with the volatility in, in interest rates um, that we've experienced over the last year or so uh, tends to lead to uh, very good selection opportunities for those managers that want to have the tools and capabilities and experience um, to be able to uh, evaluate the, the opportunity set within that segment of the market. Uh, but then at the same time, the flexibility to be able to actively manage through, um, through various market environments. So you t- mentioned briefly the you know potential for bank selling of mortgage-backed securities. Certainly, you um, you, you had a lot of fear. I think in, in some markets, you know, the Treasury market as well, the market that I focus on the most, um, because uh, because some relatively large regional banks still have pretty large uh, pretty large securities portfolios that if they have deposit flight, they might have to sell some of the more liquid securities, mortgages and Treasuries being among those uh, in order to meet their uh, meet their deposit. Uh, outflows. Um, how concerned are you at this point? It's early April now. It's the fifth of April as we record. How concerned are you about continued contagion from some of the uh, regional banks? It seems like the globally systemic uh, important institutions are well capitalized and actually have benefited a little bit in terms of deposit flows um, from what's going on with the more regional banks. But but how concerned are you um, in general, whether it's for the economy or some sectors within uh, w- within the fixed income? landscape uh, about financial contagion going forward well for us you know broadly we're we're not we're not that concerned about it we we certainly appreciate that um you know the uh, the events of last month within the you know so let's call them the you know the regional banking sector um certainly have brought a lot more eyeballs uh, to the the balance sheets of, of financial institutions domestically um, and it's not just the uh, it's not just those of investors, but also of of regulators too. Um, and um, we appreciate that there are some acute situations uh, that exist out there, uh, but would also uh, but would also say that you know the the, the you know, what the Fed was able to implement uh, post the uh, post the, the the wind down of the two institutions in the middle part of March um, certainly went a long way as it relates to being able to. Um, at least shore up near-term funding issues um, that these financial institutions may have relative to, uh, you know, their their held to maturity portfolios. Um, so at, at least um, to the extent that there is any any deposit flight, and, and I realize that the recent data that we've seen uh, from both the the Fed as well as just the government in general uh, is, is saying that that deposit flight has has slowed quite a bit. And I know that's a little bit delayed, but I think that's consistent with with just some of the um, uh, kind of the you know the the investor uh, angst that has has certainly gone down quite a bit over the course of the last couple of weeks or so. But you know that um, that that deposit flight situation to us is something that that has been you know relatively well ring fenced and quarantined. Uh, and I think the the programs that the Fed has put in place um, will at least give those institutions that that maybe need um, you know different forms of financing um, for parts of their book an opportunity to be uh, more selective with with how they approach the marketplace to the extent that they want to liquidate some of those holdings down the road in case they need to um, and as I said right now you know given the the recent uh, stabilization that we've seen especially amongst some of the uh, the smaller uh, financial institutions it, it may not even be something that that's that's necessary down the road but I think it was you know important for the um, 
the authorities to step in the way they did and as forcefully as they did. I know they, you know, they went as far as they could as it related to expanded deposit coverage insurance, but, but all of that, um, you know, de definitely goes a long way as it relates to trying to, uh, trying to spread that contagion. If I could just editorialize for a second, I think one of the big differences between this crisis and what happened back in 2007 is, is in 2007, it took four or five months for everyone to kind of realize it was a big problem. And this time, you know, they headed it off pretty early. So it wound up looking a lot different than it could have if right. this could have been a new savings and loan crisis from the 1980s, like when we first yeah. got into the business. Um, and and it, it doesn't look like it's going to, to get there. Um, at least that that's my read. Exactly right. And then you saw the... Um, you saw the way the uh, the playbook was followed around uh, you know, March and April of 2020 as well. Uh, you know, we went from uh, kind of programs being rolled out pretty much on a on a daily basis um, relative to the financial crisis, whereas you note it was more of a, a month by month type of progression over over a handful of months. Um, so the uh, the reaction time um, from the Federal Reserve and the uh, the policy responses. Um, certainly have have grown larger but at the same time they've also um, moved much more quickly yeah so so just in the few minutes we have left here um are there any sectors within the fixed income landscape that you find particularly attractive or that you think investors should consider avoiding at the moment because they're they're rich for whatever reason so um you, you know just a little bit of relative value sure. among a sector allocation yeah if, you know from a thematic standpoint right now it, you know, we have We've felt for some time that uh, we were going to be encountering a uh, a growth challenge here in the the second half of this year. I, I think if we just look at at the fact that the Federal Reserve you know, historically doesn't have a very good track record on executing economic soft landings, coupled with the fact that uh, you know we we've had a view that this this inflation challenge was going to be one that would persist a lot longer and require a lot more force from the Fed. Uh, to ultimately be able to control, um, especially as it relates to you know slowing economic activity, aggregate demand here in the U.S., and then ultimately you know working to ease up the tight labor market situation. Um, so you know the 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 challenge there to us meant that it was likely you were going to see a a a, a, a past pattern being repeated, which is the Fed continuing to hike until it eventually breaks something. Um, certainly, we've started to see some cracks uh, forming in the financial system and. You know, our conversation about you know what happened last month is is a is a great example um, from that standpoint. Um, so so as we think about kind of how things are expected to evolve over the course of the next couple quarters into the second half of this year, uh, you know we still we still expect that that we are going to see a um, a meaningful slowdown in economic growth. Of course, you know some of that's going to be dependent upon. Uh, you know what the evolution of the inflation data is over the over the next handful of months and into into the middle part of this year, and then also what the reaction function of the Fed actually ends up being. Uh, for now, they're telling a story of of their desire to choose inflation over growth, um, but but we think at some point in time that that may actually change, and and they may focus more on growth to the extent that uh, the growth picture gets to be. Uh, challenge later on this year, but you know, with that in mind, um, and as we look across the the broad U.S. fixed income markets, uh, I think you know the risk-free space to us is something that um, you know has has grown in attractiveness. I think there you know certainly have been spots in the latter part of of last year and earlier this year where uh, nominal Treasury yields um, looked very attractive, and as a result, you know we've been advocating and positioning 
with longer interest rate duration profiles relative to market benchmarks um, in our portfolios. One, it, it's, it's a reflection of how we're thinking about just overall valuations right now in the fixed income markets, and also a way for us to uh, express that view as we have as it relates to a slower growth environment um, you know, towards the latter part of this year and just the benefit that we expect that, that we would have in our portfolios of, of having more of that flight to quality type of exposure. Um, as it relates to some of the spread sectors, I know we've talked a little bit earlier about agency mortgages. You know, if we look at the corporate credit space, our, our general theme has been to move up up in credit quality or, or higher credit quality. Um, so within the high yield space, you know, generally trying to bias more towards a higher credit quality part of the high yield market. And then even with high yield relative to investment grade have have viewed the investment grade opportunity set as, as looking a bit more attractive than the high yield market. Um, when we just look at spread levels uh, within investment grade and high yield, the investment grade market to us um, appears to be doing a better job of one pricing the tighter liquidity conditions that that we know we've been going through as as the Fed has embarked on this um, is embarked on their their policy tightening campaign since um, since early last year. Um, so better tighter liquidity conditions being maybe a bit more um, accurately priced into the investment grade market, as well as doing a, a, a bit more job of pricing in the slower economic growth environment that we're anticipating um, later on this year. The high yield market, um, we, we don't feel that that's necessarily the case. And I think if you look at uh, current spreads right now in the high yield market that are still inside of the 50th percentile on a longer term basis, um, you, you know, to us, we still feel that there's room for those spreads to to move wider, even if you know you could point to maybe some of the positives of no upcoming maturity wall for high yield issuers and you know overall higher quality balance sheets. We still feel that we should be paid more for taking out of that liquidity risk as well as some of the credit spread risk. So you need to be selective and, and still that that higher credit quality type of bias there. Um, within the securitized credit space, um, and I know that you know there's been a lot of focus on commercial real estate, understandably here over the near term, um, we do think that uh, there are some, some interesting opportunities for investors um, within the, the more consumer geared um, elements of, of the uh, of the securitized credit markets. Um, so that may be um, residential mortgage related um, securitized credit, as well as even um, some of the other consumer oriented things such as automobile finance. Um, and, and really what's driving that for us is one, the fundamental story as it relates to the, the still continued strength of the US consumer. You know, the consumer balance sheet is one that's in extremely solid shape right now, especially if you think about the possibility of entering a recession in the latter part of this year. So there's fundamental support uh, for the consumer from a consumer balance sheet from an employment standpoint. And then also the spreads um, within the securitized markets um, from from our lens and, and through our analysis tend to be doing a better job of maybe pricing um, that that tighter liquidity environment um, that we know that we've been going through. So as a result, we feel that there's a more accurate kind of re you know, pricing going on in the liquidity spread premia that tends to exist in the securitized markets relative to the unsecured markets. Great. Well, we're at time. That was John Dunsing. He is the head of fixed income for Amundi US. John, thanks very much for coming on Fick Focus. You bet. Happy to join you, Ira. Thanks again for the time. And in just a moment, we'll be going to our interest rate info segment with Will Hoffman. And we're back with our interest rate intro segment with Will Hoffman, the our associate in interest rate strategy here at Bloomberg Intelligence. Will, 
what would you like to learn today about the fixed income market? Thank you for having me as always, Ira. So my question today is something a little bit back to basics. Um, given LIBOR is now on life support at the end of its life, thanks to the ARRC, we're fielding quite a few client questions on what the new replacement is. Uh, as many people see LIBOR replacement and figure it's a one-for-one -one swap. Um, and so I was hoping you could break down a little bit um, what SOFR is, what it is not, and how market participants can view this new reference rate. Well, maybe we need to go back and discuss a little bit about what LIBOR itself was, because I'm, I'm, it's going to not be part of listed derivatives anymore uh, on the, t t the 20th of April. So we might as well talk about what it, what it used to be. Um, so LIBOR is an interbank borrowing rate between banks in London during London hours. And Generally speaking, it's a liquidity measure um, as to how much it costs you to borrow dollars um, when the uh, when the U.S. market is closed. Um, that, so during the financial crisis a, a, a dozen or so years ago, people would look at LIBOR OAS, uh, so LIBOR versus the expected federal funds rate, which is OAS, both unsecured rates, but one during London hours and the other one during U.S. hours. And if that got significantly wide, that would be a signal that there was dollar funding stress, that maybe bank credit was widening, and that you'd see a significant amount of um, you know, financial turmoil. Uh, so during the last month, during the, the whole banking turmoil that we saw with SVB and, and Signature Bank and the like, people were trying to use SOFR and said that SOFR versus OAS had actually tightened and that th that was a signal that there was no banking stress. Well, that's not an accurate way to look at the world at all because SOFR is a completely different rate than LIBOR. Um, the secured overnight financing rate, which is a rate administered by the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uses secured repurchase agreement transactions with treasuries as their um, as their collateral uh, for uh, for the the calculation of SOFR. So SOFR is a bit more of a liquidity rates measure than it is a bank credit measure like LIBOR was. So so there, it is definitely not a one for one and not a like for like replacement in how you can use it to evaluate the the health and stress of dollar funding markets. Um, so Bloomberg uh, does have a, a potential alternative. It's one that we've been using um, it, it, and, and has a pretty good relationship with what LIBOR has done over the past couple of years. And that's the Bloomberg, uh, uh, the, the, the Bloomberg short-term bank yield rate. It's BSBY. We call it Bisbee. Um, that's a potential re replacement for LIBOR. It doesn't trade as much in derivatives markets and over-the-counter uh, as much as LIBOR based products did. Um, and another product is, is also Ameribor, which is also similar to LIBOR in some respects. Um, but neither of those has, has particularly good volume on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but I do think as if you just look at the closes of those and, and try to evaluate those against something like treasury bills or overnight index swaps, they, they will give you a hint as to um, the health of the banking sector and bank spreads. So Will, did that answer your question? Absolutely. And thank you for the intro to interest rates. 
And with that, thank you very much for listening. If you have any ideas for topics or questions you'd like to uh, you'd like to submit to us, please hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, I, my name is Ira Jersey, and I am the Chief Interest Rate Strategist. I appreciate being your host on this program. On behalf of John Dunsing and Will Hoffman, I appreciate you listening. Until next time, be well. Be well.